Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. I'll be reading the scriptures from Lamentations 22 to 24, 3, 22 to 24. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, greatest by faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore I will hope in him. You can be seated. Tonight, in lieu of a regular sermon, we're going to have questions and answers. I have about a half a dozen for us tonight to think about, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Let's begin. Modesty is a big issue in the church, and I think it's safe to say that someone undressed would be wrong in worship or anywhere in the building. That being said, why is it all right for us to have pictures of Jesus on the cross undressed? It might be okay for us to discuss it, but sharing images in PowerPoints or lesson material you think would be wrong, why do we allow this? I I don't think I've ever been asked that question before, but it's not a bad question. The first thing is that I don't think I've ever done this in a PowerPoint. I don't think I ever did, and, and frankly, I think for the very reason the person is asking the question. The second thing is that When you go back into history, every source I could find, and there may be an exception to this, but every one I could find would indicate that in Roman crucifixion, the victim was completely unclothed. Now, the the pictures you see don't portray him that way, and I think you can understand the reason why. We have no actual painting or photograph of Jesus on the cross. And that gives you pause too, doesn't it? And every everyone you've ever seen, and right now in your mind, you can probably picture one. We've never actually had any kind of photograph or, or, or clear painting of what Jesus looked like. What, what also gives me pause about the question, though, is to put this in the category of immodesty, and I suppose it is. But not in any kind of sexual way, of course, but, but a matter of, of uh, respect. I got to thinking about this. If, if my brother or my father, if somebody I loved was in a terrible car accident, for example, and the, the emergency, emergency technicians came and they gave him all the assistance that they could, but they could not save him. And they walked away from him, and for some reason, what they were covering him with, his naked body, was was pulled away, and he had just expired. And I saw that. Do you know what I would do? I would do what you would do. I would go back over there and take that covering and, and cover him back up. 
I think everybody in this room would do that. Now, why is that? And, and it's really not a question of what we typically consider to be modest or immodest. It's not exactly that. What it is is respect. And I believe that's the reason why in every picture that I can remember in my life or painting or portrayal of Jesus on the cross, there's always been a loincloth there, even though I don't think there really was. It's, it's to show that kind of respect. And so the answer to that would be that, that I, w- I would agree with this question. I don't, I don't put up PowerPoints, pictures, depictions of Jesus just wearing a loincloth. And, and I would say that the reason is because I want to show him respect. And I believe that we, as the quester said, I believe that we can adequately describe the cross without putting up these, these pictures. It's a good question, interesting question. Next, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in just a couple of minutes in verse 11. And here, here's the, the quote, of course, in verse 14, with which we're most familiar. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with iniquity, or what communion has light with darkness? Now, here's the, here's the specific question about the verse. I've heard this and the verses following interpreted as a commandment to abstain from participation with charities that are not affiliated with the church. Is that correct? I think that's very interesting. You've probably also heard this verse connected to a Christian marrying an unbeliever. And would that be be an appropriate application of this principle? Here's here's what the text is about. You go back to chapter 6 and look at verse 11. Back up to verse 11 and you'll see the context. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. That is, the apostles, the preachers of Jesus, have have just poured out the gospel and they're wide open to these people to love them and to baptize them and to help them along. We're wide open with you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. See, the problem is that you can't reciprocate in the way that you should because of your own affections. You're divided. Now, you can imagine how the Corinthians, some of them, my, my, you, you read in 1 Corinthians 6 and passages like that and some of the things, worldly things they'd been involved in, and it was a constant battle just like it is with Christians today to stay faithful and to stay strong. And he looks at them and he says, I'm wide open with you, but you're not with me. You're restricted by your own affections. You're having a problem being distracted by the world. 13. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. And now he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You know what a yoke is? On beasts of burden, it was that wooden thing that went over the back of oxen and or whatever it was. And then beneath that, there would be these loops that would encompass their necks and they would they would pull together bound by this yoke and the picture is that we would be yoked together with people who don't have faith in Christ Jesus they're unbelievers don't do that he says don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers I've always thought that the word unequally was important in this passage because because you're giving the unbeliever the authority over you if you have two oxen pulling with a yoke, and the bigger one wants to go to the left, and the little one wants to go to the right, they're going to go to the left. 
Got it? And so Paul says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he argues the point. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? In fellowship, you understand what that means. You, you're, you're in one accord together. You're bound together, tied together. And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And Belial is another word for Satan. Or what part has he who believes with an unbeliever? So here's the warning. I'm open with you. We have this communication that I want freedom in, in Christ. But it's not the same on your end because your affections are divided. And why is that true? And that is, it's because, because you're divided about worldliness versus righteousness. And, and while that's true, you're always going to hold back from me. 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch the unclean thing. And I will receive you and I'll be a father to you and you'll be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It isn't wrong to be involved with unbelievers in life. In John 17, before he died, Jesus prayed, I, take not, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And, and about the specific part of the question, it wouldn't be wrong for Christians to be involved with unbelievers to help other people. I mean, if your neighbor's basement floods, do you reckon there'd be anything wrong with you joining in with other neighbors who are not believers to go and pump out the man's basement? No, that'd be a great thing to do. You ought to do it. But that would be different from a charitable organization called the Catholic Charity, something that ascribes itself, attaches itself to the promotion of false doctrine. I'd be hesitant about being a part of that. And the reason is passages like this one. I must be careful in my life while I interact with people who are not believers to be sure that what I'm not doing is being unequally yoked together with them. Unequally yoked, where I give the power to unbelievers to, to use my influence for wrong in, in whatever way it might be. And so that's the answer that I would give. Um, is, it, is it wrong for a Christian to marry an unbeliever? Per this verse, I can tell you what would be right. You know, and we have passages. First Corinthians chapter 7 and 1 Peter chapter 3. You've got passages of Scripture where Christians are married to unbelievers. What we don't know is were these people both unbelievers and then later after they were married, one of them became a Christian. Could be. Or, or was it the case that you have two people, one's a Christian, one's not, and they decide to get married? I don't know, but I can tell you from this, for a Christian woman... To marry an unbelieving man and to vow that he will be her head would be in violation of this principle because she would be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. That's food for thought. Okay. Number next. Here again, an interesting question. If another congregation has excommunicated a member... Excommunicated is not a biblical term. I know what you mean. Uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5 or 
2 Thessalonians 3, 6, uh, the terminology that's used is to withdraw yourselves. So I don't mean to quibble about that, just for clarity. If another congregation has, has withdrawn from a member, are we all bound by that withdrawal? That's pretty interesting. So in, in, um, in the West Huntsville Church, there's someone who's living in persistent sin, and no matter what we try to do to bring him back, he's going to continue in that impenitent, egregious, whatever it happens to be sin. Nothing doing will bring him back. And after every effort is exhaust, reasonable effort is exhausted, we withdraw our fellowship from him. Does that mean that all the other congregations of the churches of Christ should also respect and follow that withdrawal? And the answer is that, that the church is autonomous. Now, you know what that means, of course. It means that we have no higher government than the local eldership And above that is Jesus Christ. So you don't have any kind of national headquarters for the church of Christ. It doesn't, or worldwide headquarters. It doesn't exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is that it wasn't in the New Testament. So you've got each congregation, Acts 14, 23, each congregation has her own eldership. And, and they would govern over that congregation. And that would include leading the church sometimes in the practice of the withdrawal of fellowship, as 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 teaches in some of the passages, Matthew 18, would teach. So the answer to the question is that other congregations wouldn't necessarily be responsible for the decisions of these elders. Now, here's the however. However, having said that, when people come into this congregation... Our elders love them, and they love them too much to pretend that they're saved if they're really lost. And so for that reason, a person comes in, and our elders are going to want to know, you know, have you obeyed the gospel? And if the person says, no, but I'd still like to be a member of the church, I'm sorry. We, we'd like to teach you and study with you and work, help you however we can. The answer is no. You can't be a member of the church and be outside of Christ. You can't. Biblically, it just won't work. The same would be applicable to a person who's been withdrawn from. And so what our elders would do, and this is just prudent, would be to to contact that eldership, wherever it is, that withdrew from them, the congregation, and say, what happened? Tell us what happened. And then our eldership would look at the, the, the facts of the case. They would do diligence, and then they would make their own decision. And... Uh, if they found that the person was was um, truly worthy of that withdrawal, they would honor it. They would, of course, because they don't want to encourage somebody who's lost by making them believe they're saved. And is it possible that they wouldn't come to that conclusion? It is possible that they would come to a different conclusion of, of the facts, and they would not be obligated to that withdrawal. Number next, my wife and I do not drink beverage alcohol and have always thought it to be sinful. However, we know a few members of the church who drink occasionally and do not believe it's a sin because they're not getting drunk, saying the Bible only condemns drunkenness. Can you comment on this issue? I preached a sermon on moderate drinking a few, I don't know, maybe a couple of months ago, and it's in our archives, and so I would... 
I'm not going to re-preach that. You can go back and listen to that if you like. But just in three bullet points, let me give you three of the reasons why I believe that moderate drinking itself is a wrong thing to do. And everything in me, I want to encourage all of you to stay away from it. Just abstain from it. Three reasons. One is that it isn't necessary for an action to be explicitly forbidden in Scripture for it to be sinful. Now, we understand that about lots of different things. I want you to understand it's applicable to this. You say, well, the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn moderate drinking. That's true. I don't have a verse that specifically says that. I believe it's condemned implicitly, but not explicitly. Galatians 5.19, you know, gives you that, that list of a number of different sins, and it concludes by saying, and it says you can't go to heaven with these, but the last one is, and such like. What do you make of that? And such like. And the point is that, that you're to use your own good judgment and things which are akin to these things, you must avoid, but it's still in the list of you can't go to heaven if you do these things and the things that are like those things. I would underscore the fact that, that there are lots of awful sins in this whole world with which you're familiar that are not explicitly condemned in the, in the scriptures. And, and yet you know that they're wrong. And they are because they violate principle. And that's, that's the problem with moderate drinking. And number two, it's the problem of your influence. I do not know. I've been around a number of alcoholics in my life. Bible, the old, the old Bible calls such a person a drunkard. I, I've known a number of them in my life, some of them very personally. And what is consistent about all of them is that none of them, when they started drinking as teenagers, intended to become drunkards. Not a single one. Nobody does that. What that means is that among our young people in this church right now, presumably there would be some who could, who could start moderate drinking. Maybe just friends with friends. And you know what? They could control that. And if you're right, and moderate drinking isn't wrong in itself, and I'm not granting that except for this discussion, you would have contributed to the great downfall of somebody who was going to drink and never be able to really control it. Think about that. Matthew 18 and verse 6 says, Whoever causes one of the least, one of the little ones who believe in me to stumble, it was better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he was drowned in the depth of the sea. Listen closely. This is what Jesus says. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. I, it's not just that I don't need to participate in the sins myself. It's that I must be very careful not to promote sin in other people. And certainly not on something that is, is such a matter as this. Now here's a third bullet point that I want you to think about. And this has a little, ought to have a great impact on all of our thinking. It's the viewpoint of your spiritual shepherds. What is the authority of the elders? And the answer is they're spiritual shepherds. What their role is is not to legislate new passages, new laws of the New Testament. 
what their job is, is to take the New Testament and to work among us to help us adhere to that. And sometimes it, it involves judgment calls, application of these principles. And the New Testament teaches we're bound by those decisions of the elders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen is so strong. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves because they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief because that's unprofitable for you. I would have you to know that all four of our good elders are convinced that even moderate drinking is a serious risk to your soul and are asking you to completely abstain from alcohol. Number next. Does the word wives of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11 refer only to deacons' wives or to both elders and deacons' wives? When you go to the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have a list for the elders and you have a list for the deacons, right? Here are the qualifications beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. When you get to verse 8, it says this, Likewise, the deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Now, verse 11 says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. So you have these, these qualities that must be present in the the wife of the one who would become a deacon. But you don't have that, that same list among the elders' qualifications. That's very interesting. Now, why is that not, why is that the case? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know that. It's, it's, when I was thinking about this, this answer, it, it, it really reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39. And it's talking about, a woman who whose husband dies and that she can marry anybody she wants. And then you have this line, only in the Lord. Now what's interesting about that to me is that the same isn't said about a widow, a widower. It's said about a widow. A widow, marry anybody she wants, only in the Lord. But it doesn't say it about the man. Why not? Well, I don't know. And I frankly don't understand that. I would say that if a widower asked me, I would say, you know what? The best thing you can do is marry only a Christian. That's the best thing you can do, right? But that's not what 1 Corinthians 7 explicitly says. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, what I would say is very similar. I would say that what we do have about the elders' wives is this. A man who would be an elder has to rule well his own house. And surely that, surely that implies that the wife is going to be the kinds of things that are listed here. And perhaps that's what Paul meant when he used the word likewise. Likewise, their wives must be reverent. So perhaps in that likewise, you have it. To the bottom line is this. I cannot imagine that the Apostle Paul was suggesting in any way that an elder's wife could be opposite from this. Of course, she's going to have these qualities. Interesting question. Here's the last one. This is from Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. Now, you're going to be familiar with this, even though we, I don't know, maybe we don't talk about it enough. 
Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, and he's quoting from the prophet Joel. In the bottom of that prophecy, or that quotation of Joel's prophecy, it says, and it'll come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, bear in mind that, that Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel, and he says, what's going on here at Pentecost right now, and this is the beginning place of the church, this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And Joel's prophecy says, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, here's the question. Many preachers in Christendom urge that people need only to say sincerely the sinner's prayer in order to be saved. Here are a couple of typical texts of the sinner's prayer. So here's a couple of examples. Father in heaven, I come before you as a sinner, believing that your son Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. I ask you to now forgive me of my sins and accept me as your child. In the name of Christ, I ask this, amen. Or, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and that I deserve to go to hell. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I do now receive him as my Lord and personal Savior. I promise to serve you to the best of my ability. Please save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, again, the question isn't, is the sinner's prayer biblical for people to pray who are pursuing salvation? That's not the question. The question is, what passages of Scripture would typically be used by somebody who believed this or was promoting this idea of the sinner's prayer, which is very interesting? And the answer is Acts chapter 2 and verse 21 and Romans 10, 13, I would say are probably the big ones. Now, the first one is the one I read a while ago, which is Acts 2 and verse 21. It's the, the last part in the beginning of the church in Acts 2. It's the last part of Joel's prophecy, and it says, Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans ten thirteen says essentially the same thing. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I want you to know that there are a number of reasons why these passages cannot be teaching that one is saved by praying the sinner's prayer. Now, here's the first one, is that the very people that Peter's preaching to in Acts 2 were told in verse 37 and 38 what to do to be saved, what to do to have their sins washed away. And he didn't say, I want you to pray the sinner's prayer. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of of your sins. They weren't told to pray the sinner's prayer. They were told to repent and be baptized. Two, the very people, when you think about Acts 10, 13, that Paul was writing to, when he says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, they got into Christ according to the same letter in Romans 6 and verse 3. The way they got into Christ was by being baptized into Christ, and they were baptized into his death. How do you call on the name of the Lord? Well, if you're talking about how you'd be saved, the answer is that you repent of your sins and you're baptized. The answer is that you're baptized into Christ and into his death. Number three, I know that this doesn't mean the sinner's prayer because Jesus explicitly said in Matthew 7 and verse 21, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven, right? 
Number next, one who calls on the name of the Lord does so by being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's how you call on the name of the Lord. Acts 22 and verse 16. And now why why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There you are. What Jesus said about being saved in Mark 16, 15 and 16 was this. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord to be saved? It means to hear and to be baptized. And that is what everybody ought to do. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.